Well, it is uh, great to be together in this place again. Um, some of you I know may be wandering in for the very first time or joining us online this morning uh, after being away for a bit. And if you uh, are newer to the circle, uh, it would be helpful to know that we're in part two of a multi-part series that we're calling Real, Real. Uh, as um, our preachers last week uh, reflected across our campuses, um, the whole subject of discerning what is real is a pretty big theme in our life today. Uh, we are being confronted uh, daily by uh, phishing scams. Uh, we have uh, heard, uh, we struggle sometimes to know whether the news is truly journalism or some form of ideology being thrown our way. Uh, teachers now and others of us are, are confronting the question of whether that beautiful essay was written by ChatGPT or by the student in question. Uh, we're finding that um, uh, cosmetic surgery and computer-generated virtual worlds and people like George Santos are constantly challenging our perceptions about what's authentic. And it's about to get harder because Apple is rolling out this week a new technology they call extended reality. Uh, a whole new version of augmented and virtual reality that's going to blur the distinction between the real and the digitally created uh, even further. It is getting to be almost a full-time job sorting through what's real. And uh, knowing that um, always it's the youngest people in our circle that are prone to sort of see what the truth about these things is, I want to invite the the, the students and kids that are in the circle to help us by using your reality-detecting device on some pictures that I'm going to show you. And I'm going to show you a picture, and I'm going to ask you, is this real? And then you say, if you think it's real, you raise your hand uh, and keep it down if you think it's, it's a fake. So here's, here's, here's the first one. Is that ship that you see there, is that real or is that just superimposed on that picture. Raise your hand if you think it's real. It's real. It's real. The clouds are clearing in the bay beyond those buildings and just showing us the mass of that, of that ship. That's a real picture. How about this creative use of a selfie stick? Um, <laughs> did some really brave pilot manage to pull that off? You think that's real or is that fake? It is fake, exactly, yeah. I think the cabin would have depressurized or something had he, had he done that. Or do you suppose you might be able to rent this uh, Airbnb, this really great Airbnb? Do you think that's for real? You think that's for real? It's a fake. You can't go there. That's, uh, that is Photoshopped. Um, who thinks that maybe this lion actually needed an MRI? It's possible, right? Is that real or is that fake? It's real. I hope Leo's feeling better now. Whatever was ailing him, they, they got it sorted out. Okay, last one. What about this beautiful rural scene? Is that photoshopped or is that an actual picture? That is real. That is a place you can go to where a lavender field adjoins a wheat field, I'm told, in the Provence region of France. Uh, so that is the real thing. 
Well, you did really well. I mean, that's impressive reality detection there. But it helps sometimes to be in the company of other people (laughs) that are challenging your thinking and helping you to sort this stuff out. And I'm going to guess that that is probably part of the reason why uh, the, the Apostle Paul long ago felt like it was helpful to write the letter that he did to, um, to the group of people that we now call the Galatians. Um, as our preachers uh, last week described in both of our campuses, the, uh, the region of Galatia uh, was a part of the ancient world that would be uh, overlapped today with modern-day north-central Turkey, okay? And, and, and there were these small communities of Christian believers, of followers of Christ in this particular region of the, of the ancient uh, part of the world called Asia Minor, or we today call Turkey. And, and they, had a, they, they passed around uh, information that was shared with them from the leaders of the Christian movement. And, uh, and, and the Apostle Paul sent a letter to this region, trusting they would pass this letter he'd sent them around from community to community. These particular people in Galatia were trying to work out their faith uh, in, as we in our time are trying to work out our faith amidst complicated forces and competing belief systems of that time. That's the issue for us in our time. We've got lots of complexity in our world today. There are all kinds of ideologies and belief systems and, and, and ways of looking at life that are always in competition with each other. And we're just trying to figure out, you know, what, is, what amongst these things is real and really helpful? And what is, what is not uh, so much? So Paul writes this letter to the Galatian Christians to help define for them what real Uh, Jesus following, real Christianity was all about, and and to help them distinguish the authentic picture from the the distorted or photoshopped or faked pictures that were being presented to them in that day. So that helpful analogy for us. At the end of chapter one of of the letter, where we left off last week, Paul uh, describes some of the significant places that he has visited along his spiritual journey. And then we pick up the story in chapter two, Uh, of Galatians, where Paul says this. Then, 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem again. He just kind of starts abruptly. Then, I was all these other places. Then, 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem again. Now, Paul is obviously drawing on a memory here. He's not filling in. Uh, Maybe the Galatians knew the story. Uh, We do know the story, Um, and it's important to understand that backstory in order to appreciate fully what happens in Galatians 2. You may recall that, and, and this may be news to some of us, and that's okay too, that before he was the famous Apostle Paul, the, the, the great leader of the Christian movement, uh, before he was that, he was the infamous Christian killer Saul. Uh, he had grown up as a, um, as a very faithful Jew. He'd gone to the best law school of his time. Uh, he had become a, an incredibly respected Pharisee. He was a Jewish fundamentalist. And, and, and the Jewish fundamentalists, or the Pharisees, were convinced they knew everything there was to know about God. And they knew more than that. They knew how God wanted to be served. They, they were sure they had 
a grasp on the picture of real faith, authentic faith. And, and Saul, as one of the leaders of this movement, became really bugged by people that distorted the truth, that, that, that were uh, in some way disfiguring or pulling people away from the true faith of Judaism, which he knew was going to one day bring the Messiah to the world, and, and he wanted to preserve it. And so he was convinced that the followers of this rabbi from Nazareth were a danger to the faith. They were, they were like a, a virus that was spreading, that was distorting people's uh, spiritual health by, by, by sharing this gospel of theirs, this good news of theirs, that were taking people away from strict Judaism. Okay? So he went about trying to find these people, round them up, uh, interrogate them, imprison them, and in some cases, actually kill them. And in Acts chapter 9, uh, Paul or Saul describes how uh, on one of these journeys to, to purge the world of Christianity, uh, he's on this road up to Damascus in Syria. He's been based in Jerusalem. He's going up to Damascus in Syria, and he's going to kill more Christians there. But as he's traveling, Jesus meets him. It's after the resurrection here, so Jesus doesn't bodily reach him, meet him. But Jesus in some way appears to him and speaks to him and literally and figuratively knocks Saul off his high horse and proclaims to Saul that it is actually he, Saul, that has been purveying an inauthentic picture of God. And it is, it is actually the Christians that know what is real, that are living an authentic faith, that are doing what God is truly looking for. So 14 years before this, this moment in Galatians 2, um, Saul, who is now renamed Paul, uh, travels, up back, travels to Jerusalem to meet the leaders of the Christian movement. He has been practicing the Jesus life, the Jesus way himself for several years. He's been making this slow turn away from Phariseeism towards this new life in Christ. And, and he's eager to meet Peter and James and John and the, the heroes of the Christian movement. He goes to Jerusalem, and when he gets to Jerusalem, he meets a really sour reception. Why? Because the people in Jerusalem, the Christians, know who this guy has been and what he has done and the way he's destroyed the lives of people and actually literally killed friends of Peter, James, and John for being Christian. And, 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 and some of them are trying to give Saul a chance because they've heard that he's gone through this transformation of some kind and, and they think, gosh, the gospel is about forgiveness. It's about second chances. And others are thinking, no way, I'm not trusting this guy. He's a mole. He's just trying to get in. He's infiltrating the, the, the church in order to destroy it. And some of those people actually set out to do violence to Paul. And because of that, he flees Jerusalem. And he goes off on, on travels, what we now call his missionary journeys, all throughout the non-Jewish world, the, the Gentile world as it was called, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in those places. 
So the big idea here, here is, is Paul is, is serving the church and the purposes of Christ in the church, but he's rejected by the established church. I don't know how many of you have had a chance to make it to the movie theater in recent months and see The Jesus Revolution. Any of you see that movie? I see a few hands up. I, I went some uh, months ago. There were only about like 10 people in the theater, and it was me and like everybody else was from Christ Church. I just quince. <laughs> hey, Pastor Dan. I'm trying to be incognito. Hey, Pastor Dan. If you've not seen this movie... This is a movie you should see. This really is, a, is an amazing, amazing um, story. Um, it basically tells the, the tale of a time, an actual period in uh, American history, the late 1960s, when some drug-using hippies, motorcycle gang members, and various other sketchy people, outcasts, radicals of some kind, suddenly and surprisingly, discover Jesus and become very curious about him and start wandering into established churches. And, and in this particular movie, um, we, we meet a guy named Lonnie, a, kind of a flower child uh, guy, um, who is, by the way, played by the actor that plays Jesus in the Chosen series. And Lonnie is hitchhiking, and Lonnie gets picked up, uh, and the, the driver of the car that picks him up is the daughter of a failed pastor named Chuck Smith. Uh, almost every church that, and this is not in the movie, but I know the backstory to this, every church that Chuck goes to pastor shrinks. And he's in a church now, he's in a, in a church in Costa Mesa, and his wife is saying to him on the side, Chuck, you maybe need to think about a different job. This is like not a gifting for you. I mean, it just shrinks. And, and, his, and his daughter is frustrated with him. She thinks the church has stayed and, and boring and, and just not at all something that anybody her generation would want to go to. Uh, but she picks up this hitchhiker named Lonnie, and she says, well, listen, I, I'm going, I got to go to church. Why don't you come with me? And Lonnie walks into the church in Costa Mesa. And he is full of a passion to know Jesus and to proclaim the name of Jesus. And you can imagine how the, um, the local folks in the church receive Lonnie, which is not well, right? I mean, they just, they, they want to usher him out. And Lonnie starts bringing his friends with him. And, and, and people start arriving more and more in, in, in this little church. And Chuck Smith is faced with this tremendous conflict because what do I do? I mean, these people are really scaring and ticking off my established church members and elders and, he, and something in him says, I'm going to stand up for these kids. And I'm going to tell those elders they need to settle down. And we want to welcome these kids in. Well, some leave the church. Some of the established folks leave the church. And, and, and Chuck starts to center these, these young people coming in. He starts putting them up front, helping to lead worship. Uh, they begin to introduce new music into the services. Um, it's a tremendous uh, act of hospitality that, that Chuck shows to these, um, to these young people. And, um, and by the way, in the movie, um, Kelsey Grammer plays Chuck Smith, the pastor. Frazier plays the pastor. Um, so um, 
what Chuck sees is, is that um, these kids, uh, though they don't on the outside look much like real uh, church people, uh, what is going on on the inside is so real and is so beautiful. And, 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 and even though they've got hairstyles and musical tastes and sketchy vocabulary and pretty messy background stories, uh, unlike what church people have, they've got the inside things really right. And they know how desperately they need Jesus. They know how they need a, a spiritual doctor in their lives. They know how, how, how hungry they are for grace. And they're just blown away as they hear the story of a God who loved human beings, messy human beings, so much that he stretched out his arms for them on a cross and paid the price for their sins so they could have eternal life. And, and, and it profoundly impacts them. And they start sharing this story with friends on the beach and, and in the hangout places that they go to. And those people start coming into the church. And by the handfuls and then by the, the dozens and then by the hundreds and then by the thousands, they come. They come. These young people come to Christ. And, and they unleash a massive phenomenon in American history. They un unleash what's called the Jesus People Movement. They, they, they invent what we now call praise music. Maranatha Music, a first recording label for praise music, was birthed out of, out of that church in, in Costa Mesa. And, and, they, and they are used by God in a way that is nothing short of a kind of Pentecost moment where thousands and thousands of people come to Christ and they start planting churches all across the United States, first in Southern California, and then across the North America and across the world. And, 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 and this uh, spiritual revival that they bring about is truly, factually, the greatest spiritual revival since the Great Awakening in American history. And some of us don't, didn't, didn't even know it happened. But it did. A Jesus revolution happened in this country as a local church learned to look not so much on the external things but at the heart. Well, when this um, highly respected Christian named Barnabas brought... Um, Paul back to Jerusalem 14 years after he had uh, visited the place and gotten basically run out of town, um, the reaction of, of people like Peter, James, and John is now different towards him. Um, I think, my theory, is they now regarded him like I regarded Chuck Smith when I first met him, and I had the privilege when I lived in California of knowing Chuck Smith. A and I regarded him as, as the leader, a, a Christian leader in a new kind of Pentecost moment in, in American life. And now Peter, James, and John are seeing uh, Paul as somebody through whom God is moving to transform the lives of outcast Gentiles, in a sense, non Jewish, non-churchy people, into Jesus people. And they're actually quite curious ab about encountering him. 
Uh, Paul, of course, did not really fully know what he was going to walk into when he came back to Jerusalem the second time. And in fact, he says to us in Galatians 2 and verse 2, I went in response to a revelation. And the implication there is, God prompted me that I was supposed to go and do it. And you can imagine, I'd be, I, I, he might have been nervous going to do this. But he said, I went and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. And I wanted to be, and this is a really humble statement he makes here, I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. So here is, Paul's out there. He's working his way through all of these villages and towns, all over the Gentile world. He's seeing people coming to Christ, and churches are forming, and, and change is starting to move out from those churches, and widows are being cared for, and orphans are being lifted up, and hope is starting to spread. But still, there's some part of him that thinks, gosh, I hope I'll be accepted by the establishment people. And if I'm off base anywhere, if I'm... If I'm messing up anywhere, I hope they'll set me straight. Because I don't want to be running this race in vain. So Paul shows up in Jerusalem and he, and he wants to share with them the strategy that he has been using to reach all of these non-churchy people, these, these Gentiles. And Paul's strategy is a really, really simple one at its core. It mainly involves paying attention not to the superficial things that Jewish Christians regarded as the mark of authentic faith, but looking inside of people. Now, in those days, the number one superficial mark that you were a real deal believer was that you were circumcised. Circumcision was a custom that made somebody a part of the in-group of the Judeo-Christian community. And you can understand why, given what circumcision involves, there weren't a lot of people rushing for that as adults. But Paul said, like Chuck Smith said to his congregation about the need for haircuts among the hippies, you know, the, the establishment people want to say, hey, let's get these people cleaned up, then they can come to church. He said, no, 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 we're not focusing on that. In fact, we need to let that whole haircut thing go, is what Chuck said. We need to let it go. We need to, to forget about the neckties and just let that go. Uh, so whether it's circumcision or a kosher diet or wearing your beard a certain length or having tassels on your clothing... Paul says, we need, to, we need to get over that. We need not to focus on that stuff. And I think he might today have a word for the church. I think he would probably say, hey, I think we should ignore the, the tattoos, maybe even admire the tattoos. We should, we should not be concerned about the tears in the jeans or the coffee cup in the hand or whatever somebody's backstory has been. And let's just pay attention to what Jesus is, is trying to do in their heart. As the prophet Samuel once observed, and it was hard for the Jewish people to keep remembering, you know, man looks at the outward appearance, but God, he looks where? That's right, inside, at the heart. We look at the superficial things, God looks at the internal things. So Paul then goes on in Galatians 2, and, and he describes a fight that he'd had a few years before when he ran into the apostle Peter up in Antioch. 
And somebody came out of the first service this morning and they said to me, why was the apostle Peter up in Antioch? What was that about? I mean, he, he, why wasn't he back in Jerusalem? Why was he way up in Gentile Antioch? Here's my theory. And this was, this was the other guy's theory too. He said, he said, I think he'd heard about the Jesus revolution. I think he wanted to go see it. I think he just wanted to see what's going on here. It's kind of like those revivals that have happened in our time on college campuses. You know, has there been any part of you that wanted, I'd kind of like to go down there and see what that's like. So, so Peter is up there in Antioch, and, and, it, and there, there, there comes this conflict point with, between Peter and Paul up there. And uh, I think it's fascinating because I want to say parenthetically, sometimes the purposes of God in our homes, in our churches, in our communities, require that we have a good fight. Let me say that again. Sometimes we can't really get to where we want to go or, or, or develop the unity we really need until we've had a struggle over things. Um, and, and when we've really listened to each other, when we've really gotten our feelings out, and when we've really learned to take those things seriously and, and exchange it and cleared the air, sometimes then that, the breakdown of a fight can become a breakthrough that leads to new partnership at a higher level. And so this fight kind of breaks out between Peter and Paul. And this is, this is how... Uh, this is how Paul describes it. But when Peter came to Antioch, I, I had to oppose him to his face. I, I just had to oppose him. For what he did was wrong. In fact, he says, very wrong. When Peter first arrived, and he's describing the whole scene here, when he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers um, who were not circumcised. When he first got there, he was chill with, with my people, with the people I was working with. Peter was great with it. But afterward, when some friends of James back in Jerusalem came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. Ooh, we don't want to be seen doing that because, you know, James might tell other people back home what I've been doing. Um, and Paul says he was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision, that superficial thing. And as a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. Sometimes we make these little course corrections in the way we live our faithfulness out. We know Jesus is calling us this way, but for social reasons, we go, ah, maybe I won't, say, won't share my faith. Maybe I won't be as outspoken about this. And we think, oh, that it's just me. I'm just doing a little shading. But we have an impact. Our witness, our way of doing it has an impact on other people who are watching us. And then they start doing that too. And that's what happens here. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. And even Barnabas was led astray by this hypocrisy. And when I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, that God loves everybody and he cares about their heart and it's not about the superficial things. When I saw that, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles Follow the Jewish traditions. Now, I love this part of the story because it shows uh, how hard it is sometimes to focus on the heart of people instead of superficial things. Uh, there's another reason why I love it, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. 
But, but just think about the circumstances here. Peter, Peter was no lightweight. Peter had traveled for three years in the personal company of Jesus. Peter had listened to everything Jesus said. He had soaked up all those parables. He had watched as Jesus perseveringly went to the heart of people and ignored the, the fact that they had leprosy or they had this history or whatever. He had seen this. He had seen what Jesus was like. But still, he is apparently prone to falling back into legalism and getting all hidebound about tradition and focusing on superficial things as the mark of real faith. And that makes me ask myself, how do I do that? Where am I, where am I prone to getting stuck on the outside of people instead of the, being concerned about the inside? And, and, and if Paul were here, what, what kind of a fight might he want to pick with me about the way I, 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 I'm doing life? Um, you may have uh, heard that Tim Keller died about a week or so ago. Um, some of you won't know who Tim Keller is. He, he was a Presbyterian pastor in New York City. Uh, he, he, he was an unusual pastor in that he has this amazing ability to make profound truths simple and understandable and, 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 and also a, a sh an ability to take those truths and make them incredibly compellingly convinced, convincing to intellectuals and skeptics. And God worked through him in a remarkable way to reach the elite of Manhattan and many who are not elite. But he, he, he brought about a, a mini Pentecost. God brought out about a mini Pentecost in, in New York City through the ministry of Tim Keller. And he died of pancreatic cancer on May 19. And, and, we, and we will miss him in the Christian world. Um, in his book, The Prodigal God, which if you're going to do two things, two takeaways, see the Jesus Revolution, read The Prodigal God. In his book, The Prodigal God, uh, Keller says that there are basically two ways that we can become spiritually lost in life. And we can do this whether we're self-consciously religious or not. The first way, and he, and he draws in this book on the parable of the prodigal son, the first way is like the younger son in Christ's most famous parable, we can become lost by wantonly breaking all of the good guidelines that God has given us for life. And there's a word for that. It's called selfishness, right? When I'm not, when I'm not considerate of others, when I take more than, than I should have, when I, I ignore the plight of the hurting, when I have capacity to meet, that's just, just selfishness. Uh, and that's the first way a uh, person can be lost. The second way we can be lost is by smugly keeping all the rules or believing we're keeping all of the rules and demanding to be rewarded for that and getting ticked off when other people seem to get breaks when they're rule breakers. And that, my friends, is called self-righteousness. There's the younger brother kind of, of lostness that's selfishness, and there's the older brother kind of lostness that's self-righteousness. Which, by the way, which, which of those forms of lostness are you more prone to? In your, in your own life. Um, I plead guilty to both. <laughs> but I am the eldest son of an eldest son of an eldest son. So at that self-righteous thing, boy, that's a trap for me. Um, I can be so conscious of how well I'm doing things and how other people are not really, you know, just, it's, it's a deep kind of lostness. 
Um, Keller writes these words. He said in observing the parable, neither son loved the father for himself. They both were using the father for their own self-centeredness, their own own self-centered ends, rather than loving, enjoying, and serving the father for his own sake. And this means that you can rebel against God and you can be alienated, which means separated from God, either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently, by being selfish or by being self-righteous. It's a shocking message, writes Keller. Careful obedience to God's law may actually serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. So the Apostle Paul puts the same big idea in these words in Galatians chapter 2. He says, you and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And I want to come back to that big idea in just a minute. Um, we're, but I want to read it again. Um, a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law, by doing all the rules. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law. For no one, he says, he underlines this, no one will ever be made right with God by just obeying the law. But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith with Christ or in Christ, and then we're found guilty because we've abandoned the law. Would that mean that Christ has led us into sin if we weren't checking off those boxes? Does that mean that we're lost? And he says, no, absolutely not. Rather, I'm a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. It just reminded me what a loser I was because I couldn't keep it. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self, he says, my old self, that self that used to do that whole rules thing, that has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. More on that in just a second. When I read Galatians 2, there are two big ideas that strike me. And I want to encourage you to think about these for yourself. Uh, These are two things that, that... Paul is passionate about. And the first truth is, inward transformation is greater in God's eyes than outward ritual. Inward transformation, much more important to God than outward ritual. Uh, We make a mistake when we overly fixate on people's outward stuff instead of trying to understand their heart and get close to that heart, and pray for the transformation of of the heart. Uh, And I think that we make a mistake when we take too much comfort also 
in, uh, in our own superficial, socially approved, what everybody else sees, behaviors, when what is going on inside of us, what our heart condition is, is not really that pretty. But we think it's okay, because kind of, I'm, kind of, I'm, I'm looking good. I'm managing the, the, the rituals pretty well. We make a mistake when that happens too. The second big truth in this text is that our security and our self-worth need to come from Christ alone. Paul says, please, let your identity and your security be in Christ alone. And, and what Paul and those Jesus people in the 1960s had most in common is that they truly understood that they needed grace. I have this theory that there are um, three ways of going through life that all involve a ladder. One is a ladder that, think of a ladder that it gets curved around like a train track into a circle, and it's like one of those toy train sets. And in this particular ladder, and some people will travel it, they're just going around and around in circles. And in the middle is, is some notion of salvation, or, or what they're out for, or the, win, the big success and win in life, and, and the theory that, that, that they, they have is that if I just get to know myself better and better and better and better and better and better, I, I'll be enlightened. You know, there's a whole theology called New Age Theology that's all about this. You're really a god, you just haven't woken up to it yet. So you just want to get to know yourself better and better and better. Second, there's a second ladder that some people have. I call this the short ladder. And the short ladder is a ladder that stretches from here to earth, up to heaven, and, and the rungs are things like good deeds and religious rituals and right doctrines. And we think that if we just do enough of those things, that eventually we'll get to the top. Uh, God will be, Jesus will be staying there and say, wow, you did it. You made the climb. Look at the, you built some calluses on the way. I'm impressed by how good you are. Here's salvation. And there's a ton of religions that have that approach. A ton. And even people within Christianity that are still living with the second ladder idea. We know it because at the funeral they'll say, oh, oh, Harry, I'm not worried about Harry. He was such a good guy. I know, I know he'll go to heaven. He was such a good guy. It's because they think, Harry, he got enough rungs. The third ladder is an infinite ladder. And this ladder stretches all the way up to where God really is, to the holiness that is true of God. And, and that ladder is a really challenging one to self-achieve to the top of. In fact, it's impossible. And hopefully you're one of those people who you were on the ladder someplace, and you were working hard, you may be, you were maybe even wearing yourself out trying to do the good deeds and the right thoughts and all those kinds of things. And, and you're up there somewhere and you're going, man, I, it doesn't feel like I'm breaking through the clouds. And you just keep going when all of a sudden you feel a tug on your pant leg and you look down and Jesus is there below you. And he says, what are you doing? You say, I'm, 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 I'm climbing to salvation. And he says, no, you, you, it's way too much. It's too far. You can't get there on your own. That's why I came down. And Jesus takes salva has salvation in his nail-pierced hands, and he, and he hands it to you. 
take this. You're forgiven. Now live for me. Let me live through you. And thereafter, every good deed you do, every religious ritual you enact, every right idea you try and absorb, it's not to get to the top anymore. It's just an act of gratitude to him. It's because you want to know him better. You want to reflect his ways more fully. But you've already won. You've already been given the grace you need by his merit on the cross, by his righteousness you're saved, not by yours. And you pursue righteousness now, but just out of gratitude and freely because he's so good. Which of the latter's do you think best describes your life? And I hope and pray that if you have never before felt the tug on the pant leg, you will consider this message, Jesus doing that, saying, receive the grace. Receive the grace that I have for you. And, and, and stop trying to do it all. Let me do it through you. Um, so, our security, our self-worth comes from Christ alone. And the Jesus people of ancient times realized that on their own, they were not good in anything like the sense in which God is good. They were not going to secure a place in heaven on the basis of their moral merit badges. And whether they were more like the self-righteous elder brother or more like the selfish younger brother, they realized that their self-worth wasn't going to come from how good they were or how much better they were than other people. Their hope was no longer in themselves. It was in the love of God and his grace expressed in Jesus Christ. So here's my final question. Where is your hope? Where's your hope for security, salvation, self-worth? Let it be in Christ alone. Strive to be somebody like Paul or Lonnie or Chuck in the 60s who said, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Take hold of that picture, friends, because that's real. That's where real hope is found. That shift from trust in our dry self to trust in the abundance of Christ and his self, that is authentic faith. Thanks be to, be to, thanks be to our God. Amen.